Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And my name is Julie Douglas. Julie, have you ever uh, gone on a silent retreat? No, it's one of those things I really, really want to do and I really, really don't want to do. Explain what this is for people who are uh, who are unfamiliar with the term. Um, it's usually, you'll, you'll find it kind of like a Buddhist retreat in which you go and it's usually like a woodsy environment and you and your other retreaters sit in absolute silence, usually in meditation. But the point is, is whether or not you're eating, walking, meditating, silence prevails. Okay. So it for like 10 days. Why not just go by yourself on a trip somewhere and then you can have as much silence as you want? Because apparently, the deafening silence is so maddening that a lot of people struggle with it the first couple of days and that even in that contained environment. Uh-huh. So can you imagine just trying to do this on your own and you're like, Hey, I'll just go to San Francisco and uh, have my own silent retreat. You're going to break out of that. You're going to belly up to the bar and be like, I can't, I got to talk to someone. So you need the communal support to remain silent. Yes. Huh. To you, drown out the maddening thoughts. Well, you know, this reminds me of uh, The Leftovers. I don't know if you've been watching this or read the, the book upon which it was based, but there's I've a, not read it yet. There's a, there's a cult in that in the in the book and in the and in the uh, T V show. And they they remain silent. They also wear white and they smoke all the time. Um, I'm not finished with the first season, so I, I, I don't know what their deal is yet completely. But uh, but it's but certainly it's something to keep in mind as we go through this episode. That'd be something, you know, a smoking Buddhist silent mm. retreat. Yeah, I mean, certainly you have monasteries. There's a long tradition uh, of of monks taking a, a vow of silence mm-hmm. in the Western tradition. So, uh, so yeah, the idea that there is something to be found, something holy about silence, something therapeutic about silence, is a, is a very old concept. But also something very uncomfortable about mm-hmm. silence. And we all have had that before. We have experienced that awkward moment in conversation. And apparently this is actually like a thing that people have tried to fit into a phenomenon, right? This <laughs> idea that if you are in a group that a hush will fall over the room after about 20 minutes or so. Yeah, 20 minutes after the hour even is, is the specific version of this, which was news to me. The idea that you're hanging out with a bunch of people, it's going to suddenly be, uh, you know, 120 and everyone's going to go silent. And uh, there are some crazy ideas for why this crazy thing could possibly be happening. And, you know, the interesting thing about that is I bet that everybody listening has experienced that. You know, you've yeah. been in a group situation, everybody's talking, chatting, and then and that hush falls over. But you probably have never said to yourself, ah, it's 20 minutes after the hour. Yes. It, <laughs> it must be because one of two crazy superstitions. Yes. Now, the, the first one is the, the one that I'm, I'm more into, and that's the idea that, uh, okay, first of all, buy into the idea that there are angels in the world. Okay, supernatural beings that do God's will or perhaps don't do God's will because they fell from grace and live in hell now. I, it depends on which version of the story you go with, but they're angels. Maybe we can't see them. Maybe we can. And they like to sing. And when they sing, their otherworldly voices are so beautiful. Even if we're only hearing them with the, with the, with the subconscious mind, it just forces us to be silent. It just, it just chills us to silence. 
What I love about this is that apparently they start their heavenly doo-wopping like 20 minutes after the hour. And that's why, why we would instinctively <laughs> fall silent so we could hear. Are the clocks in heaven like 20 minutes slower than they're singing at the top of the hour? Or do they, they, they're, they being patient, you know, waiting for us to be quiet so they can sing and then they give up and they're like, all right, let's just start the show. Right. Is there a heavenly chorus of angels for each time zone? How is this working? Yeah. And I never, I, I don't know. When I think of angels, I mean, when do they have time to sing? Don't they have a lot of death and destruction? to lay out on mankind. It seems like it's a pretty busy work schedule. Why are there enough angels just to stand around and sing? I like to imagine it's the cherubic, um, like, fat baby angels that are doing this. Oh, well, okay, I can imagine that. But The, but the I, ones that are in Steinmart, you know, they're like yeah, the wooden cutouts with, those their, cherubs, yeah. with their hands underneath their, their chins. Because the original cherubs, in, uh, in, in when you really go back into the, the mythology, they're terrifying. They're, sure. They're, they're bestial human hybrids that uh, that are there to lay waste. So, and But who's to say they don't have a nice singing voice? I'm talking about the cute version here. Okay. Now, another uh, superstition here is that because uh, Abraham Lincoln was <laughs> killed at 7.20 p.m., that we, again, somehow instinctively will commemorate the, the death of Lincoln uh, at 20 past the hour, which uh, this one has all sorts of holy logic in it. And if you if I had not heard this yesterday, if I had not read about this uh, online yesterday, I would think you were making this up right now, because this is even crazier to me than the angel idea, because for the angel idea to work. OK, I have to I have to accept that there are angels. I have to buy into the supernatural and, and admit that there are supernatural beings out there that are singing and causing people to go silent and they're obeying some sort of crazy schedule. Okay, I can buy into that. On some level, I can buy into that. But to say that Abraham Lincoln's death resonated so strongly in human culture that it causes everyone to fall silent 20 mm-hmm. minutes after the hour, every hour apparently, and and then you have to ask questions, well, then does it, is it only in the, in the United States? Uh, what happens if you were uh, pro-slavery? You know, what happens if you're just... You, you just don't have a good understanding of history? Or well, is it also, something so powerful that it moves forward and backward in time? Well, that, that was the thing I was going to say in a linear way. Like, mm-hmm. that also supposes that before Lincoln <laughs> w- died, there was no group hush, yeah. right? Like, there was just a, a continuum of conversation and no one ever paused. But we were coming up with a different theory here earlier. Yeah. And I guess you could call it the 420 theory. Yes, because that's another 20 minute after, uh, trope that comes up, right? The, yeah. That 420 is the time to, uh, to consume cannabis. Right. And so the idea there maybe is that after the consumption, it takes about 20 minutes for the wall of stonery to set in, in which the group hush, uh, becomes apparent. So people are actually lighting up at four as opposed to 420. They lit up at 4, and at 4.20 okay. is when the crushing silence of stonerism set in. Okay. All right. I could see that that possibly being. So you think it could be the cause of the phenomenon? Because another read would be that it stems from the phenomenon. Like, suddenly everybody's quiet, and so out of that social anxiety, they light up. You know, these are just musings. <laughs> these are uh, mid-morning musings over coffee. Probably the better explanation is that it's just a natural arc to... Uh, our narratives and maybe 20 minutes into a conversation, we've kind of uh, plumbed the depths of a joke or a topic. 
Um, there is another explanation, however, that is called the protection postulate. Yeah, and this one's pretty good. This one's significantly less crazy, though also, uh, you know, not completely proven out. But this is the idea that, uh, uh, you know, again, take, we're going to travel back in time to primordial uh, age. Mm-hmm. We're out there. Uh, around know, the fire. Around the fire, yeah. And we're talking about our day at work, killing animals and foraging for food. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then a hush falls over us because we have to stop and listen to for the, the sound of approaching predators coming to eat us at our fire. Or the, the or approaching uh, rival tribespeople coming to slay us in the night. You know what? I think there may be something to that. I have to say, I think there's something to a, an arc of a conversation, and mm-hmm. I think there's something to a group falling silent as a sort of instinctive measure to gauge what's going on outside that environment. Yeah, because you because you, you know we've all had those conversations that are so good you're just completely wrapped up in it, and you're gonna you kind of reach the height where you have to fall down again. You have to realize, oh, I'm just I'm standing here in a room and. Ooh, it's kind of awkward, actually, because I don't really know this person, and I was just really drilling into them with my whole diatribe about uh, the Ring movies or something. Yeah, know? and now they're crouched in a corner, yeah. and the silence has fallen over the room. I love that, though. I love when the silence falls, and everybody just kind of, like, nervously titters, and there's that one person who's like, whoa. Oh, yeah. Oh, gotten quiet. And then they call out the awkward silence. Yeah. In any case, all the silence leaves us uh, with something that feels, you know, very intimate, but sometimes very isolating. It's like this bubble that surrounds us. And so we're going to talk about this today, this idea that within silence, there's a merit to it. And then there's also kind of um, a demerit, I guess you could say, to it. Yeah, it, it kind of calls back to our episode, uh, Splendid Isolation, that we did back in the day, where we talked about how like, you know, a little isolation is, is great, a lot of isolation, not so great. You can have uh, the same as the and we encounter a similar situation with silence. So let's start off by discussing the merits of silence, the benefits of silence, blissful silence. Well, and we see this a lot in terms of education, people exploring the idea of silence and reflection um, as tools in the classroom. And if you look at Helen E. Lee's work, she's a research fellow in educational theory at University of Sterling, she posits that classroom silence really helps college students to consider, retain, and reflect on her lectures. And she actually brings an egg timer into the classroom with her and sets it for three-minute intervals twice during the class. And I thought about that, and I was like, you know, that is actually, I think, a very helpful concept because anyone who's ever been in a lecture or any sort of situation where there's a ton of information coming at them, you can't help your, but, you know, listen to your brain, try to react to that information, mm-hmm. draw conclusions and connections. But if you're just trying to keep up with the material itself, it's hard to really let all of that coalesce. Uh, indeed. I mean, just thinking back to, say, some of the World Science Festival panels that uh, that we've attended, uh, you know, th- you're, you're being hit with so many great concepts and different ways of looking at history or the scientific world, and you just need to stop and digest it. Uh, but instead, you're moving on. You're rolling on to the next comment. You're just like, I really hope that I got my notes down on that one and I can uh, check all this later. Yeah. Philip R. Golden, he's a researcher. He says parents and teachers tell kids a 100 times a day to pay attention, but we never teach them how. Mm-hmm. And so what some of these schools have been doing is they've been drawing on the work of John Kabat-Zinn, who is a molecular biologist who pioneered the secular use of mindfulness at the University of Massachusetts in 1979, 
initially to help medical patients cope with chronic pain and anxiety and depression. So what you see is his mindfulness work beginning to be used in K through 12 schools here in the United States. And the idea is that those kids have a little bit of time um, to focus on what they call a design element, which is solitude and reflection. And even my kid in kindergarten does mm-hmm. this in her classroom. But you'll see it at different uh, levels as you go up through the grades, the degree to which some of these kids will actually engage in mindfulness. Now, it's worth noting when we look at mindfulness and meditation, uh, some of the core health benefits that have been proven out in studies, it lowers blood pressure and it lessens agitation, which uh, which even though those are concepts that definitely uh, have a role in the, the treatment of ailments, they also have a key role in education and reaching students, particularly students who may be themselves agitated. Yeah, and um, this is we've kind of touched on this before that students aren't getting educated in how to live their lives per se. That's mm-hmm. largely left up to guardians and parents. Um, so you can't really treat a kid's depression, but you can give them a couple of tools to work through that anxiety, say in school, and be able to focus themselves better on schoolwork. There's something called the Mindful Life Project. It's a nonprofit that's based out of Richmond, California. And it teaches mindfulness and yoga and therapeutic art and hip-hop performing arts to elementary students in underserved schools and communities. And uh, all the schools have seen drops in detention and referrals. But in one school, 18 kids, 18, accounted for 82% of the suspensions. And at the beginning of their mindfulness training, those kids were suspended 62 times in the first trimester. Now, after three trimesters of this mindful practice, that rate had dropped to 20. Wow. Which, think about these kids. Um, they obviously are acting out. They're, they're exhibiting certain behaviors because they are agitated, because there are some root problems going on. To know that 62 times down to 20 was the drop and just having these moments of silence and reflection is really powerful stuff. And that's just this really tiny corner of this pocket of the educational world. Yeah, I mean, certainly when you start thinking about, uh, uh, I mean, really all, all ages of children, but especially uh, middle school, high school, there's so much angst. You know, there's yeah. so much to to distract yourself with in the in the uh, even when you're in the classroom that uh, that being able to just stop everything and still everything and then kind of teach in the aftermath, in the wake of that silence, uh, that that would be incredibly beneficial. Yeah, and we've talked about how behavior has this kind of group contagion quality to it. So if if that's the sort of thing that you're doing in the classroom that and everybody is stilling themselves, then you begin to see that positive ripple effect. Now, here's another study that, uh, that gets into the use of silence in a classroom environment. And this just comes down to... Uh, not so much the noise inside uh, the mind, but the, the the noise outside the head and mm-hmm. even outside the school. Uh, 2005 study from the University of London aimed to understand the psychological impact noise might have. And in this experiment, researchers studied 2,800 children in 89 schools. Now, some of these schools were located next to airports, while others were not. They found that children exposed to high levels of aircraft noise had much poorer reading skills than children in quieter neighborhoods. Uh, and the, the researchers used the term cognitive fatigue to describe why reading skills might suffer in children living in noisy environments. 
So in these conditions, their long-term memory is interrupted and they simply stop paying attention. So we see the importance, again, not only of, the, of, of some inner silence, some inner peace, so you can actually digest the information coming at you. You can actually shut out some of the angst and take it in. But also, you know, we are, we're organisms that exist in a world of sensory bombardment. And if you can cut out some of that bombardment, if you can cut out some of the environmental noise coming at you from trains and planes and, and whatever, then, then that can have an effect. You can take just a little bit off of the cognitive load so that you can handle some more of the concepts. And that's kind of interesting because you can then apply that to what Felicity Miller, who is a senior lecturer in science communication at Imperial College, says when it comes to people in the sciences and their intellectual progress. Because what she's saying is that there is a big initiative to enforce interaction. Ah, yes. And we've talked about this, too, in open office spaces. Yeah, this idea. you see this trend uh, all over, really. Yeah, and that you're just going to spark and you're just going to collaborate all the time and, and genius will arise. And it comes from a good place because we thought we've also talking about uh, the importance of interaction, mm-hmm. the importance of collaboration, uh, how the, the coffee houses of old were you know, a, 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 a place that sparked innovation because people were drinking coffee and sharing ideas together. Mm-hmm. But you can't take that to the extreme and say, all right, we're going to do that everywhere. Every office is going to be a coffee house of ideas. Every uh, classroom, every laboratory, it, it you, you know, you just can't. It, one size does not fit all. Yeah, and that's what Mailer is saying, especially in the academic setting. And she says, hey, you have to have some sort of silence and solitude to really make all of those ideas coalesce into something meaningful. And to make her point, she says, hey, look at Sir Isaac Newton. She said that he was a proponent of isolated working shutting himself away in his rooms, publishing reluctantly, and restricting his audience to only those he thought capable of appreciating his work. Huh. And you know he also had cat doors, so the cats could come in and out without dis- disrupting him. Little flaps. Another reason <laughs> why he was a genius. And uh, she says that, you know, if you look at physicists today, they don't quite have that level of solitude and silence and that they do best by striking a balance between silence and communication. And she gives a couple of other examples. Werner Heisenberg, she says, retreated to the island of Heligoland to escape hay fever and the constant chatter of his colleague and mentor, Niels Bohr, who knew that that the quantum theorist was such a chatterbox. And she's not to be confused with Legoland, of course, horrible place to go and try and work. (laughs) Yes. Heligoland is not Legoland. Um, she says that it was here that Heisenberg was able to reflect on these discussions that he had with Bohr and lay down the basic foundation of quantum mechanics. And another great example, Peter Higgs uh, has uh, claimed that he would not have been able to uh, complete his Nobel Prize winning work in this current research environment. Uh, you know, he, he insists that the peace and quiet that he had in the 60s uh, in, in order to, to actually you know, tackle uh, his work, he just would not be able to have that today. So that's interesting to think of as well. And so the idea is that if all we're doing is engaging, engaging, and engaging, which is really easy for us to do in this day and age, particularly with social media, mm-hmm. um, then we're missing a key part of reflecting on our experiences and then the formation of new ideas with those novel associations that we have to have that silence in that time. And you could argue that, hey, you can, my brain does it when I sleep. <laughs> yeah. But as we have talked about before, we're like probably less efficient at sleep now in this day and age than we ever have been before. Yeah, yeah. If you're falling back on sleep alone for your uh, information processing, 
then uh, the, you're really walking a fine line. <laughs> you're you're going to fall. All right, we're back. Uh, we're talking about silence and the role that silence plays in our lives, in our world. Uh, so far, we've talked about the importance of silence when it comes to uh, quieting inner turmoil, quieting outer turmoil, its effects on our ability to learn in school, our ability to get things done at work, to tackle new concepts and turn them around and, and ultimately uh, work on in, in, inventive new concepts. But there's a different kind of silence that people experience, and, and it's more in a social situation, but it can actually color um, our experiences and cultural experiences. And in fact, it can color history. And what I'm talking about is the spiral of silence. This is an interesting theory that comes to us from German political scientist Elizabeth Noel Newman, uh, developed this in 1974. And basically the idea here is that uh, people have the tendency to remain silent when they feel that their views are in opposition to the majority view on a subject. And it's very interesting, of course, that this comes out of Germany in 1974, you know, definitely coming in in the wake of the Second World War, in the wake of uh, the rise and fall of the Nazis, in the wake of the Holocaust, uh, where you have you know individuals inside and outside of, uh, of of the German people asking the question, you know, how how could this have happened? How does how does this extreme uh, take on uh, on global affairs, and uh, how does this become the norm? How does all of this rise to power, right? And uh, and so this is uh, in a way. Uh, an attempt to look at that, you know, to 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 say, well, you know, why why didn't people speak out uh, when when there were these extreme opinions in their midst? Why did they remain silent instead of saying, you know, that's actually a really dangerous idea? Yeah, and the the yeah, the extreme actions that ensued, and this is what Newman was predicating her model on, and the mm-hmm. model is based on three premises: one, that people have a quasi statistical organ, a kind of sixth sense, or the ability, I guess you could say, the ability to read the room to figure out what the prevailing public opinion is. Two, that people have a fear of isolation and they know what behaviors will increase their likelihood of being socially isolated. And three, people are reticent to express their minority views because of that fear of isolation. And she says that the spiral is created or reinforced when someone in the perceived opinion majority speaks out really confidently in support of the majority opinion. And then, of course, those in the minority kind of recede to the shadows. What I love about this uh, theory is that we can pretty much everybody can plug their own experiences into this. Unless you're one of those individuals that I can scarcely imagine who is always in the majority, Uh, you know, who is who has never had an opinion that differs from those around you. Um, For instance, you're uh, you're hanging around some people you don't really know, and uh, they're talking about a movie that you really like, except they hate it. Uh, you may not feel comfortable saying, "Hey, actually, I really like that movie because of X, Y, and Z," because you are you're already uh, um, outnumbered by those who dislike it. Yeah, and I'm sure everybody has been in a social situa- situation before in which your minority view mm-hmm. is is held, and you don't necessarily want to speak out to the majority, even if you feel like what the, those opinions that they're expressing are terrible. You know, because, again, there is this idea that uh, the majority is there. You might be socially ostracized. And you see this, like, from, say, you know, just your cultural tastes mm-hmm. to something as terrible as the Holocaust, as Newman was trying to figure out. Like, how do these 
what sort of models in place here to to keep people under wraps. And so I think that's why this idea or theory is so powerful, because it does show how people tend to express themselves or not express themselves. And one of the perceived weaknesses of this theory is that you have minority views that are expressed like super exceedingly expressed (laughs) by some members of the group, which I guess you could say would then become known to the group. And then that minority view would be expressed and cancel out this idea of the spiral of silence. So that's, that's one idea here that kind of goes against the model. Another idea is that the internet, the great internet (laughs) is leveling the playing field there's all these different pockets of um, opinions out there, and therefore they should all be expressed equally, right? Okay. But no, that is not the case. Uh, so that is sort of an outmoded idea of one of the criticisms leveled at the spiral of silence because it turns out that the Internet is actually, at least in one study, mimicking the model for the spiral of silence. You know, and before we get into that, I, I also have to add that in my own experience, when I find myself in a group, that's, uh, you know, among people that are not my group, mm-hmm. you know, um, uh, I'm awful, often, often don't engage with them like for some, I feel like some other reasons as well. Like, and a lot of it comes down to, you know, me versus other. So it's like, I know that, that you guys have a different opinion on things than me, and I am not going to try and convince you because you are the other. And why would I, you know, I know that I cannot convince you and I don't want to convince you because you're basically a different species than me. You know, it's kind of it's like if I hear some people talking about how great football is, I don't particularly like football. But why am I going to even chime in on that conversation? What's what's well, my possible agenda in, in contributing and in creating uh, yeah. some sort of artificial argument over that? This is why common ground is so incredibly important. Mm-hmm. This ability for for each of us to find that common ground. So you like wrestling. Yeah, I that, know this. And this is another example. Like, that's something that I often don't bring up. I generally don't bring it up because, <laughs> because people are going to look down on me. And I, it's a it's a it's a long uh, I have a hard time understanding myself why I, I like it. So, well, uh, but I guess my point is, is that I think in these conversations and in these com- common ground, there there's some crossover. And so there's mm-hmm. these opportunities for humans to understand one another which is largely what we try to do is to find that common ground. But when we don't, again, it's this idea that we're going to be socially ostracized. And a lot of us don't think much about that. Okay, whatever, I'm going to be socially ostracized. But really think about it. I mean, the ability of the human species to have existed for as long as it has has largely been because of cooperation. Right. And cooperation means finding that common ground, but also gauging what the group thinks and, and choosing your battles, you know? And and sometimes sometimes it is just a matter of choosing your battles and saying, why would I possibly bring up something at the dinner table that I'm going to fight with my in-laws about? You know, why that that would yeah. just be silly. But then right. also there are going to be examples. Why would I bring it up if it could get me ostracized or killed? You know, and certainly there have been countless examples of that throughout history yep. when someone has a differing religious opinion, differing um, sexual orientation or gender orientation, etc. And that's currently at work in, in our modern um, world as well, right? Mm-hmm. That's not just uh, the stuff of days gone by. All right, let's look at this Pew Research Center study. They wanted to see how hot-button topics were being expressed on the Internet, specifically in social media. So they selected the topic of Edward Snowden, 
revealing mass surveillance by the NSA to look at how opinions are being parsed. And the report's author said, quote, we selected the issue because other surveys at the same time were fielding this poll that were fielding this poll showed that Americans were divided over whether the NSA contractors leaks about surveillance were justified and whether the surveillance policy itself was a good or bad idea. And so the Pew Research uh, Foundation found that in one survey, 44% of people said that the release of classified information harmed public interest, while 49% said it served public interest. So you have a topic basically here that everybody has an opinion on. Mm -hmm. So the Research Center's Internet Project found that not only were the 1,801 respondents less willing to discuss the Snowden NSA story in social media than they were in person, face-to-face, but they also determined that average Facebook or Twitter users were especially less likely to voice their concerns during real-life interactions if they felt that their friends or their followers would not support their viewpoint. Hmm. So, again, this is just one study, and it's relatively small. It's one topic. It would be really interesting to see this in other uh, areas like gun gun control or abortion or many other topics that are lightning rod topics. Um, But you do, at least in this instance, see that model at play where people do not want to be socially ostracized, even though they have an opinion on this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, the media plays a huge role in it. There was another Pew study that looked at uh, uh, the 1991 Gulf War and U.S. support for that war. Mm-hmm. And uh, they found that those who watched television and perceived that the public supported the war were more likely to support the war themselves, um, uh, which, which again, plays into this idea that, that if you know, even if we don't agree with something ourselves, if we feel like the majority is 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 directed that way, then that can sway our opinion as well. Now, Snowden. I mean, the thing about Snowden, though, is that I feel like at the heart of that, you do have a a difficult figure to get behind, you know. And you have these you have these different poles. I feel like this whole topic is 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 uh, is made more complicated too, just because you have such a uh, such a polarizing figure at the mm-hmm. center of it. I mean, you have the personality of the individual thrown in there. You have elements of of uh, alleged treason. Mm-hmm. You have uh, you have you have uh, you know uh, criticisms of how he handled it, and then but then you still have lots of damning evidence uh, about uh, the use of uh, domestic surveillance and uh, and other revelations. Yeah, Snowden is a polarizing figure, and I'm not going to say like Snowden and Julian Assange are apples apples because they are not. But mm-hmm. here you have another person who is you know essentially leaking secrets of governments who is a very enigmatic character and not polarizing, but polarizing in a more of like a hero, anti-hero way, as opposed to Snowden is more a little bit like people aren't quite sure, I think, about his character. And so um, I think maybe you bring that up because that could certainly color the results of how or why people want to express themselves about the topic. Right. Yeah. And in the labels, we end up putting on those individuals. I mean, we could go on and on just comparing those two figures Mm -hmm. uh, that are both uh, problematic in their own right. But But what to do with all of this information? Well, I think it's just to consider, again, the nature of silence and what it's doing for us as human beings. And um, I think that Susan Sontag has a great thought about it. Um, This is from her 1969 essay, The Aesthetics of Silence. She writes, silence remains inescapably a form of speech.
So it's sort of one of those things that, yeah, sometimes we feel like in not expressing our opinion that we're removing ourselves from the situation. However, it just means that we're allowing one voice to dampen another. And as Newman tried to explore the ways in which actions spiral out of the spiral of silence. Indeed. And, uh, you know, I want to uh, advise everyone to, to keep this topic in mind when you listen into our next um, episode of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, which will get into the area of uh, mass hysteria, uh, where, where, again, we're dealing with how we behave within a community, how we think within a community. And uh, it, it, it's like all things human. It gets so, so complex and strange. Indeed it does, especially with teenagers. Yes. Yes. All right, uh, you can find us in a bunch of places, mainly StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's right. That's the mothership. That's where you will find every podcast episode. Occasionally we get an email or a Facebook message where someone says, hey, I was looking for this episode, or uh, you know, and it doesn't seem to be on iTunes. Well, all the episodes are at the website. So if you've ever heard us mention of an old, an old episode, you're just curious what we've covered over the years, that's where you will find all of them. And uh, you'll also find videos, you'll find blog posts, and you'll find links out to our various social media accounts. And if you have some thoughts about the spiral of silence or even the merits of silence, you can send those thoughts via email to blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 